but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I am Jonathan. And I'm James. Where do we even start with this episode? I feel like the the best place, the best jumping off point is Rafael Nadal. Okay. Well, he played a little bit in DC last week. Lost to Lloyd Harris in a second match. Then swiftly pulled out of Toronto and then Cincinnati. You mentioned he won a match in DC. He beat Jack Shu in his mm. opening match. A resurgent Jack Shu. Luckily, Rafa got through, lost to Lloyd Harris in the next round. There's concerns about the foot thing, which is a congenital injury that he's dealt with forever. But, you know, he seemed, in D.C. at, at least, he continued to practice. He seemed, maybe not confident, but optimistic that he would be able to continue to play through. And he pulled out of Toronto, pulled out of Cincinnati... And, of course, we have to wonder if the U.S. Open is still on the table. There was a tweet circulating a couple days ago, allegedly from somebody in the know, who says that he's shutting down for the rest of the season. That he's gone back to Spain, met with his doctors, and that's that's the direction that they're heading. There has been no official confirmation of that, but it doesn't look good. Because he tried to play in Toronto, decided he couldn't, and then immediately withdrew from Cincinnati as well. So it seems to me that whatever short-term measures they were taking to try and get get him through it weren't working. Right. And apparently playing more is not going to help this injury work itself out. (laughs) So Novak Djokovic also pulled out of Canada, pulled out of Cincinnati. The second one was a bit more surprising because he will not have a lead-up tournament to the U.S. Open. Well, this is why we started with Nadal, because I feel like he kind of precipitated, not that he was the first of them to do it, but that big news was the first of a lot of big news of these top players pulling out of events ahead of the U.S. Open. So there'll be no warm-up events for Djokovic, for Federer, for Serena, for Venus. Wawrinka pulled out of... U.S. Open and these lead-ups, uh, you know, a few former champions of Cincinnati have already pulled out of the tournament. It is just, it's a weird summer, right? And it feels like a transition that we've been waiting for for a long time. For many years, people were speculating that all of these, this older generation is going to wait for 2020 in Tokyo to retire, and then 2020 never happened. And then 2021 Tokyo happened, and a lot of those people didn't even go. So now it's like, well, what? what's the plan? Like, how long are are these folks planning on sticking around and playing tennis? That was probably a projection on our part the entire time. Right, but we were not the only people talking about it. That doesn't make us any less wrong. No. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this summer hardcore, the U.S. Open Series, if we're still calling it the U.S. Open Series, it feels a bit deflated by all these withdrawals. And, uh, I mean, it it makes sense that we are in a transitional period where tennis has to figure out who its new stars are going to be. Like, who is going to carry it into the next generation? 
Or is it that we as fans have to figure out who we are going to stand going forward? Like that we keep that saying, too, yeah. We keep saying tennis has to figure out who's going to be the star. Somebody has to put their hand up. Well, I mean, if you're going to be playing that game, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because that's predicated on, say, one person tearing it up and becoming like a runaway new star. You know, like that may, right. that may not happen at all. Right. But what we've been seeing for a long time now, especially on the WTA Tour, in the absence of Serena in particular on a week-to-week basis. Yes, she plays great at the Grand Slam still, but a host of women have been playing really well for quite a while now in the WTA, and that's borne out again in the results in the last couple of weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. On the men's side, I would say there are pretty significant holes and just the level of competition all around is, uh, it could be improved upon. Such as? Who are you speaking about uh, I'm not, I'm speaking, I'm more speaking about what we don't have, right? I'm, I'm seeing Djokovic, who is uh, by far the best player in the world, but is not being forced to play his best tennis to win these big events. Okay, but... He hasn't played since mm-hmm. the Olympics, and he didn't win the Olympics. So, like, there's like there's been a gap of tennis since Wimbledon that there have been results. What have you not? There have. What have you not seen? Take Djokovic out of the equation, because the tour carries on outside of the slams, right? Indeed, it does. I mean, on the men's side, we're sort of just we're waiting for the next generation or that middle generation or whatever to sort of wrest tennis away from the old men. Tsitsipas and Medvedev are probably the best candidates to do it. That other guy won the Olympic gold medal. Dominic Team being out is is a big question mark as well. Like that's a big gap in the men's tennis landscape. I think fans want to see the young guys beat Djokovic and sort of win over the tour. Okay. In the absence of Djokovic in this stretch and potentially during certain non-slam stretches going forward, because... Obviously, Djokovic is at a stage now where he's targeting the slams as his main priority. These guys are going to be winning tournaments against each other. Right, Like, the right. time for, like you said, the Tsitsipases, the Medvedevs, those guys to win Masters 1000s against a Djokovic or a Nadal, that time may have passed. Fair enough. And, I mean, <laughs> it's not a tragedy, but that's just that just might be where we are. So, in saying that, there's been this narrative which you've kind of propagated again here, mm-hmm. that I'm pushing back against. I'll gladly propagate it again. <laughs> that in order for this next gen to be taken seriously, they have to beat the big three to to rise to Mount Olympus, to conquer Kilimanjaro. You know, like... Mm-hmm. Well, it would be nice, but... But it might just be far less dramatic than that, is what I'm saying. Yes, and then, correct. And then, in retrospect, five months down the road, you look back... And Riley Opelka has won three Masters 1000s. And right, how did right. that happen? So tennis is such a young sport that since the 70s, each successive generation has had players achieve more. As the sport became more professionalized and they played mm-hmm. on a uniform tour, they started winning more more big titles, more Grand Slam titles, more money. So the big three achieved something that's so crazy that the next generation it's not reasonable to expect that they will surpass it. And I think like most generations in tennis, they've had the uh, the hope. Even though mm-hmm. Sampras's 14 was at the time considered crazy, like Mount Everest. 
Roger passed it so so quickly. And then the other two came and did it as well. Right. So if Dominic Team or Tsitsipas or Medvedev win five or six majors in their career, I mean, at one time that was a Pantheon career. That's a really great career. Mm-hmm. I mean, that may not even happen. Well, exactly. But at anyone from this generation. We could have a bunch of Roddicks out here. Right. Which is fine. Perfectly acceptable. But the start of their career was squarely in the shadow of the big three. And so mm. at, at a certain point, we're going to have to course correct the way we view these players' careers. Because right. even though we're not giving them that grace in this moment, they they have been held to an unfair standard at the start of their careers. Oh, yeah. I know we give a lot of crap to the ATP, but Tsitsipas has just reached his career-high ranking of number three. Medvedev is number two. He's a two-time slam finalist. He plays uh, John Isner later today. Like, by the time you listen, you will have known what happens. These guys are close. Like, they're they're right at the top of the game. Going through the tournaments that happened last week, we had three notable winners in Andrea Petkovic, Yannick Sinner, and Danielle Collins. Petkovic won Cluj-Napoca, beating Mayar Sharif, who is the first Egyptian woman in a WTA final. She's been the first Egyptian woman to do a lot of things over the past season. There was a, a minor controversy in Petkovic's quarterfinal, uh, when after the match, her opponent accused her of basically cussing her out on court. And Andrea was yelling. Uh, it seemed to be prompted by the suspension for darkness. Based on the video I saw, I couldn't really tell if the yelling was directed at anyone. And it was also in a language that I don't speak. So I don't know what she was saying. But she was given a code violation warning for the outburst. Her opponent, Mendez, went on Instagram and had some not very nice things to say about Andrea. And it did seem a little bit out of character, the way she was acting. I didn't see it. I have nothing to add to what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just interesting. I, uh, just, I just know that Petkovic has been on a bit of a roll lately. This was her first tour title in a few years. And she's cut her ranking in pretty much half in the last month or so. And looking at that happen for somebody at her age... It reminds me just how quickly the trajectory of somebody's career can A, turn around, or B, be extended. Because somebody like Petkovic, who's made, I believe, the top 10, she's been in the top 10 before, slam semifinalist, getting toward her mid-30s, this is the time of her career. If she has to keep fighting through qualifying and playing smaller tournaments and not having any rewards for her toil... You know, the, 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 the R word starts coming up. Right. Right. And so now, ranked top 70, so many more options to her mm. for the next year. She doesn't have to play qualifying for majors. She's ranked number 68 now. You just have so many more options and you can breathe for a minute. In D.C., some of the uh, less heralded American men had great tournaments. Mackenzie McDonald reaching the final, losing to Yannick Sinner. Jensen Brooksby whose name I know now. Mm-hmm. You're conflating many different Brooks country Bees. club names from tennis and yes. golf. Right. Uh, he was the talk of the town last week on Twitter, on TV. People really respond to his game and the way he competes. You were like Jensen DeChambeau, Bryson no, Brooksby. I thought it was Brooksby Swanson. Is that a person? No, that's baseball now. You're mixing up Dansby Swanson oh. from the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Jensen did beat two faves, which was unfortunate, beating uh, Francis and Felix last week in Washington. Mm-hmm. It hasn't taken much recently to beat Felix on a hard court. He's struggling wow. big time yeah. on hard courts. In San Jose, Danielle Collins wins her second title in a row, second title of her career, beating Kazatkina in the final. And that's after having made the semis, I believe, in Hungary, the tournament before that. Mm -hmm. So she was riding up until when she lost this week in Montreal. She had ridden her come on train to back to back titles and 12 consecutive wins all within the last Mm -hmm. month. So she won in Sicily, won in San Jose, gets to uh, Montreal and beats Simona Halep in Simona's first match back since Rome. A long three-set match in which Simona acquitted herself pretty well. Yeah, competed well, I think, more than I expected in the first match back from injury. Danielle seemed to injure herself in the third set, and she took a medical timeout that Simona was not very pleased about. I guess Danielle kind of apologized at the net after the match, and she was crying in her on-court interviews because Mm -hmm. I think she was scared that the injury was serious, and that it was it was kind of an emotional win over such a great player. She also had self-awareness of the timing of the medical timeout because yeah. it's something that I feel like we've seen so much more of in recent times or something that's been given more attention in recent times. This phenomenon of medical timeouts happening in the deciding sets of matches where the timeout is taken right before your opponent has to serve. Right. And Simona was not, she was not happy about it in press. And she said as much. And it's fine. Like, that's definitely her right to be displeased about it. I get it. Danielle, I mean, she did acknowledge it right away. uh, You know, as like professional to professional. Mm -hmm. There are some players who have a an earned reputation for doing things Mm -hmm. like that. And I don't think Danielle is one of them. Typically scammers don't acknowledge the scam. (laughs) Right. Or deny the scam, Uh you know, so. I feel there has been a real sea change in how the the tennis community on social media has viewed Danielle over the past few months or weeks. Don't make large sweeping statements about this because it's not everybody. As is the case with with anything. Exactly. Not all of tennis twitter is standing danielle collins i had assumed that when i said tennis twitter is coming around to danielle that it was implied that i didn't mean 100.0 percent of everyone said, on twitter has come around implying okay. that it had happened well you know tennis twitter is not a monolith i'll never do that again Mm-mm. um no ma'am but there has been a, a change in the way people are talking about her some of that maybe a lot of that has to do with her friendly relationship with Venus and Serena and the fact that she gave an interview recently talking about how Venus and Serena's friendship or acquaintanceship or whatever you want to call it makes her emotional like that mm-hmm. she you know she's proud that she has a good relationship with the the sisters because she looks up to them that's going to win over a lot of fans I mean um, another part of it is her actual game she mm-hmm. plays a blitzing ground stroke game that's fun to watch when she's on right i mean this is the type of thing that you've been clamoring for for a long time you love the blitzing baseline game oh yeah and 
the the way she competes, her fire and her passion, some people took that to... Oh, look at you choosing your words carefully here now. <laughs> no, it's some... I can understand... Uh, she came of age in the Trump era, <laughs> and she gave serious Karen vibes. That's what it's all about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was so, during a time when a lot of those American men were unapologetically Trumpian, and... She was coached by Ryan Harrison's father, I think, at one point. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff that was a little bit too close for comfort. I, I've always said this, that I don't begrudge people being suspicious or uh, leery about someone like Danielle because she can evoke this pandemic-era trope or one that's become much more prominent during the pandemic of the angry white lady, right? A Karen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much to like about her, though, and I think... That's why she's won over a lot of fans recently. The the Williams sisters thing, the fact that she's been living with a very painful disease that took a long time and a lot of effort to get diagnosed properly. Like everybody loves a story where, you know, a player overcomes something serious. And the fact that she's been open politically in a way that is uh, surprising compared to some of her American counterparts. Based on some interviews she's done, her politics seem more progressive than a lot of the other white American players. But again, I get why she sort of, she pings this, uh, this familiar trope of white ladies who are angry. And in this particular period, that is, uh, that's really evocative. It's more than that. It's more than white ladies who are angry. Mm -hmm. It's white women who will... Well, we we know what a Karen is. We know like the political weight of what a, a Karen is. Right? It's, ab- it's about not knowing what they will do, right, or where their loyalties lie, and also or, knowing yeah. the full lengths to which they will go to get what they want. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so I get it, but I do want to challenge myself and challenge my fellow white people right now to look at the way that we use the word Karen and how that has. Uh, traveled quite a distance from how the word was originally used the first time i heard it was karen from finance oh yeah or karen, or karen from, from hr or yeah. yeah stuff like that but you know karen is one in a long long line of terms used by black american folks that basically means the same thing like a white woman who will weaponize her privilege to attack or demean or endanger black people so when white people use karen we sometimes use it in a way that paints ourselves as the good white person and that white person over there, she's the problem. Like, mm-hmm. they're the problem. In a similar way that a word like woke or or any politically useful term that originates from the black community, when it migrates or gets appropriated by white folks, it loses... A big distinction there. Migrating. Yes, I corrected myself and... because it's active. Yes. The, appropriation through that appropriation it loses a lot of its power and that's part of the the intent behind it right right because when i call someone a karen what i really should be doing is looking at myself and how i've used my own privilege in my life Mm -hmm. and when you call somebody else a karen you're turning the lens away from you and trying to separate yourself from that type of behavior rather than just showing your own behavior right and we see this a lot on twitter specifically when and tiktok like it's fun right it's not just about being fun it's it's this thing where white folks learn like a a safe way 
to travel through the internet, right? Like mm. they've seen mm. what has happened to all the Karens before and they've learned the behaviors that A, they should not do and B, the ones that if they highlight it to for other white people will score them points for themselves. So it becomes mm. a, a performative thing whereby there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, a lot of pinatas, Karen pinatas, that they just right. whack, 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 whack on the internet. And the the desired effect is to be like, look, I'm one of the good ones. <laughs> yes. And which, listen. Which dip, that, that is not doing anti-racist work. No. And by bringing this topic up, I'm saying that I'm not better, mm-hmm. right? Like, I am sure I've done that as well. Because identifying a Karen on TikTok, that's easy, right? That You can dunk on her because, oh, God, I would never act like that. Or, like, that's the worst of us. But you got to look at the best of us as well <laughs> and and sort of hold the same spotlight. Mm-hmm. Commenting on the video of the, of the Karen acting a fool in a Burger King. Like, like you said, yeah. that, that's easy. Like, obviously, that's bad, right? But grappling with the the intricate and subtle ways that racism is pervasive in society and understanding your role within it and how you perpetuate and inflict racism on other people, that's hard. Yes. And that doesn't... And can be painful. And that doesn't score you the same Karen Pinata points. (laughs) No. But that's the point. Like, what have we lived through the last 18 months? Uh, We have strayed a little bit away from Danielle Collins, but I think she's... such an interesting figure because people project a lot of just a lot of cultural conversations that are currently going they project it onto danielle collins we talked about petkovich being resurgent somebody else who's had a string of good results recently is kenny shikori yeah he's had a bit of a, a return to form he's more consistently a threat to some of the top players he had a nice little run at the olympics reaching the quarterfinals taking out Andrei Rublev in the first round. And this year he's had wins over Felix, Hachanov, Opelka, Karenio Busta. I think the tour is more interesting when Kay is playing well. I don't think you'll get much argument with that statement. (laughs) This week, there's been tennis in our hometown. Mm -hmm. The men are in Toronto. The women are in Montreal. The Canadian Open, or now called the National Bank Open, did not happen last year previously known as the Rogers Cup. Right. I had to train myself out of calling it the Rogers Cup. But the National Bank Open it did not happen in 2020 due to the pandemic. We are sort of just emerging from a series of lockdowns in Canada. So if you see kind of empty stadiums, I think that's why. Like, It wasn't until the very last moment that fans were even approved for this tournament. Yeah. In this city, especially, there's still some hesitancy to, to go to an event like that. Uh, the grounds are very restricted. You can only watch tennis in the main stadium. Even the grandstand, uh, the, the stands are all locked off. And it's been really, really hot. So mm-hmm. it, the, the heat broke uh, yesterday. Like yesterday was the first cool day of the week. So I don't blame people. And I don't blame players for being a bit testy in Toronto this week because it was very, very humid and hot. I contemplated going on Wednesday day session. It fit with my schedule now that I was back to work. But the cost and the fact that it's still COVID, man. You know, like I just... It was not something that really appealed to me at all to do. Mm -hmm. But we've been watching a lot on TV. And let me tell you, these Montreal night sessions, 
they fit perfectly with my schedule. Like you've gone to bed and I've been able to watch some great tennis in the early morning hours. Yes. See, this is what I do miss about those, you know, the golden days of the U.S. Open series is these night matches in our time zone or a time zone that's close that has this like electric air that's reminiscent of, you know, night sessions on Ash, Mm -hmm. just on a little bit of a smaller scale. On the women's side in Montreal, one of the matches of the week, one of the matches of the year was Danielle Collins losing to Jessica Pagula in three sets. Mm-hmm. This was after, right after she had beaten Simona Halep in three sets the night prior. <laughs> Danielle saved, what, six match points? Came back from being down big time in that third set before eventually losing to Pagula. As we speak, Pagula has just started her comeback in her semifinal match against Camila Georgie. Oh, word. Yeah, it's 6-3-1-4 with Georgie leading by a set. Oh, well, we'll see. You'll mm-hmm. know before us. The winner of that will play Karolina Pliskova in the final. If you've been following tennis this year, we should all be hoping for a Pagula-Pliskova final because Pagula has beaten her four times this year. She's 4-0 head-to-head career all four times this year, beating her in Berlin, beating her in Doha, Dubai, Miami, I think was the other one. And had it not been for Jessica Pagula... Pliskova's year could look so much different. She's a Wimbledon finalist. She's now a a National Bank Open finalist. Had it not been for those four losses, we could be talking about her year in a completely different light. Because for a while, it was bleak. A a lot of people were eulogizing her career as a top 10 player. They were enjoying the dragging of Sasha Bayan as her coach. And And by a lot of people, do you mean us? And by a lot of people, do you mean we were dragging Sasha Bayan? Yes, that was inclusive of okay. us. Yeah. And it it almost seems like she needed that absolute blowout in the Rome final. I don't know. Like, it's like a loss like that has never done someone as good as it has Pliskova. Because shortly after that, you know, she gets to the Wimbledon final in a huge surprise. Like, did way better than any of her previous attempts at Wimbledon. Now she's in the final in Montreal. And of, I mean, Georgie and Pagula have both had her number this year. And she was asked about it and she was like, well, this is a final. And in her typical nonchalant style. Also, she quipped about, yeah, I've lost to both of them a lot. (laughs) But, you know, this is a final. Hopefully it'll be different. Pagula also took out Ans Jabur after beating Danielle Collins, beating her in three sets. That was another good run for Ansjabur. I was shocked. Well, not shocked because I know how the modified ranking system over the last 18 months have kind of created an uneven ranking system. But Ansjabur is definitely at this point a top 20 player. But that hasn't been the case with the rankings. Right. Not on paper. She's top 10 in the race. If we talk about, let's talk about the race for a second. The race to where? To, uh, well, we're not sure yet. It's probably it's not going to be Shenzhen. Basically, all of the Asian tournaments on both the men's and women's side are not happening. I don't think the finals are going to be happening in Shenzhen. But I correct me if I'm wrong. But I think they're shopping other locations at the moment. But still, there is a race to the finals, 
And it is a lot more instructive than the current WTA rankings about who's playing well. Mm -hmm. Because we've got players who are holding on to points through no fault of their own from 2019. And it it does make the current rankings look pretty lopsided. Jabir also beat defending champion Bianca Andreescu in the round of 16 in three sets. Camila Giorgi, she took out Mertens, she took out Kvitova, she took out Coco Goff. Camila Giorgi, I've seen her quite a few times in person. And it's such a spectacle to watch because when she's playing well, few people time the ball or hit the ball with as easy a power as she does. And when she's playing poorly, that too is a spectacle unmatched in tennis. Yeah, yeah. Because those balls are flying like missiles on a prayer to stay within those lines. But she has put together a number of really impressive wins this year. I don't know if she's figured something out, but it does honestly feel like she's just cracked a code on her tennis this season. Let's talk about the race for a second, because Anshabur is just now cracking into the top 20 of the actual rankings, but she's on pace to earn a spot in the finals, if they happen. She's number eight in the race. Coco Goff is number nine. Daria Kazatkina, who's resuscitated her career, is number 14. And then you look at someone whose ranking is really protected by those 2019 holdover points like Bianca Andreescu. She's number 33 in the race. Mm-hmm. And that's even behind Serena. And Serena has barely played this year. Bianca still has those Indian Wells points from 2019. In her match, in her loss to Jabor at this tournament, I, I don't know what it must be like to be her in a tennis court because Indra just seems to be a stone's throw away at every turn. Yeah. In the middle of a match. In her match against Shabur, she had her toe taped up. She was dealing with this left toe injury. She fell over on it a few times. Honestly, it seemed like she got injured several times during the match. On the men's side, today, Riley Opelka beat Stefano Tsitsipas to make his first Masters 1000 final. And he will play the winner of Daniil Medvedev and John Isner, which is happening currently. Uh, Riley, this is also his first top five win. He beat Stefanos in three sets, winning the second set tiebreak, breaking Stefanos in the third. I mean, so Riley has poked fun this week at his reputation as a serve bot, writing serve bot on the camera after mm-hmm. his quarterfinal win. He's had a great run here, right? Like he beat Nikirios in the first round, beat Dimitrov, Harris, Bautista, who is perpetually underrated on hard courts, and then Stefanos. And okay, I mean, you can call Riley a serve bot because he's seven feet tall, but he out hit Stefanos on the forehand side. The serve and volley was crisp. A, a it revelation. Was looking good. Like <laughs> right. High kicking second serves to the backhand of Stefano Tsitsipas, following it into net as a seven footer with a nimble, efficient volley game. Like, that's a winning combination, and that's something that he's worked on and developed. So with his improvement from his ground strokes, with his fairly good movement for such a big dude, Riley Opelka is making serious strides in his game. I think Steph let his emotions run wild a little bit later on in the match. We saw the the racket throws that were you know, replayed a bunch of times, three at the end of the second set. He actually didn't break the racket. He just kept kind of throwing it at the ground. 
and then, you know, smashed a ball into the stands during the third set, which resulted in a point penalty. For some reason, Tennis Channel said that Stefanos is not typically an emotional player, which, like, I don't know who they've been watching. Well, I think what they're doing is making a distinction between emotional and petulant. Right, but what we are seeing is both petulant and emotional. Mm. It's it's hard to get fully behind Stefanos on court because he just seems to be in his own world sometimes where he does things that just should not be done. <laughs> you know? It well, so a few things bug me when I'm watching a tennis player. Constant nonstop coaching bugs me. And I know that might make me retrograde or whatever. Or I don't like it. I really don't. Watching Bianca's match against Ons, I asked myself, like, are, is the WTA still doing mid-match coaching? Because Bianca is talking non-stop in a sparsely populated stadium to her box. And they're talking back. Like, is coaching allowed? I, I mean, it gives and it takes, right? This lack of fans mm-hmm. and what we're able to hear on a tennis court. Because <laughs> you're able to hear the full hundred of the exchange between Karen Hachanov and the umpire around the word mierda, around shit. right. Uh, So I actually learned a lot because I didn't realize that in some Spanish-speaking countries, that's not really a bad curse word. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you were to translate it into English, shit is always bleeped out on TV. You know, it's considered a bad word. The funniest thing about that was Karen said, how am I supposed to say go to the toilet if I don't say shit? And it's like, you just, you just said it. Go to the toilet. Like, you've already given the answer. But go to the toilet to do what? Who needs to know that? We're we're seeing and hearing a lot more on court because of the lack of fans. Mm-hmm. There was the, the crowdless match between Bublik and Medvedev with, I think it was Orly Tort in the chair. Mm-hmm. That was a horrendous that look was terrible. for Medvedev. And a terrible look by Tennis TV for, like boosting it and saying wow this is hilarious yeah which they often do with curios it's like a very bro culture kind of thing making it their pinned tweet you have an umpire who made the correct call one that sure and like like all most calls has a lot of room for subjectivity for leeway whatever but if you go by the book like she didn't make a bad call there was no need to go on and on and on and on and on about it and degrade her and then to have tennis tv celebrate and revel in that because these two are like broing broing it out and having a kiki on court about it that's just not a good look at all no but uh, you know i'm sure there's going to be someone who goes back and listens to our old episode and said well serena did this in 1963 and Mm -hmm. you guys defended it so because every situation is exactly the same yeah and then there was gail mofis who had just won back-to-back matches for the first time in a millennium. Since Dubai in February. And he gets into it with Mohamed Leani in his match. Yeah. So I was all ready to talk about just an exciting week for Gael. He beat Milman, beat Francis Tiafo, and Tiafo himself had beaten Denis Shapovalov in Toronto fairly easily. Not fairly. Easily. <laughs> So Gal had a good week, and so he's in the quarterfinals against Isner, and he starts sort of tippy-tapping and moving around during Isner's serve. Liani tells him to stop, and Gael is like, well, essentially, why? Liani cannot cite a rule, and he admits, like, you haven't broken a rule. 
but you are, quote, disrespecting the game. And so that set Guile off. Mm-hmm. And it's carried into today. He's commented on Instagram saying, like, how can you say I'm disrespecting the game when I'm out here? I'm 34, 35 years old. I love playing this game. Leani, as always, is doing too much. He's he's inserted himself into the proceedings. Like he did with his on-court life coaching of Nick Kyrgios a while back. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, most umpires understand that you are not the main character, that your role is to be fairly anonymous. Liani doesn't subscribe to that. An update on Fabio Fonini. I think we may have talked about this previously on the show. I actually don't, we I don't didn't? know if we have. So at the Olympics, Fabio uh, repeatedly used an Italian homophobic slur during his match. I'm not going to use that word because mm. I, I actually don't know how um, like how evocative it is in Italian. So I'm just going to leave it. You can mm. look it up if you want to know what it is. When he was asked about he he blamed the heat for him saying it at the Olympics, saying that he loves the LGBTQ community. And to prove that, apparently, he shows up in Toronto with rainbow wristbands and headbands. A lot of folks think Fabio's antics are cute and funny and whatever. I have been on this earth way too many years to fall for a Fonini stunt. This is this is pure stunting, right? He has repeatedly shown who he is. He disrespects female umpires. He's called them whores and worse. He's made fun of fines that he's gotten for doing shitty things like that. Like peanuts, peanuts. Right. We know who Fabio is. So I'm just way too old to find this amusing at all. I'm not here to say that Fabio Fonini is homophobic because he could be absolutely right. genuine like, in saying that he has great respect for queer people. But it can also be true that this was stunting. Right. I don't know. And I really don't care no, I really if he's don't. homophobic. I like, don't. just leave us alone, please. And the part, <laughs> the part that really frustrates me, and I tweeted about this, was... If, for example, Felix Ogialiasim had showed up in Toronto and for his first match, he wore that out on court. That would be such a powerful statement for an ATP player to make. Yes, like unprompted. Unprompted, not in response to a whirlwind of homophobic accusations for your homophobic behavior. Right, like not as damage control, as just right? as a, a statement. positive statement showing... LGBTQIA fans that they are seen in tennis because on the men's tour we are not seen mm-hmm. pride month goes by every year it's been what two years now where the WTA has changed its logo I mean to some extent big whoop <laughs> and you could say it's the bare minimum but the ATP does not even do the bare minimum right to pander and to acknowledge that we exist like we prop up tennis more so than most other sports right Yes. And so we've had Andy Murray talk about the need for people to do better in sport, to be more welcoming of queer athletes in sport. Roberto Bautista Agut posted a picture on his Instagram one time with rainbow laces on his shoes. It was unmistakable support. Yeah. And I think it was like a, against, it was a parade it was explicitly or against homophobia. Yeah. But like that was five years ago. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can name basically like the two guys it was like it was powerful when rba did that right Mm -hmm. but that was a long time ago and uh fabio did this 
as a way to like make it all be a joke and to center himself well yes which is his thing fabio suffers from pretty privilege right if fabio were ugly or not uh conventionally attractive would you all find it amusing Mm. probably not roger federer turned 40 serena williams will join him soon Mm -hmm. venus williams is already there she's already 41 even Mm -hmm. there's been some iffy report not that the reporting is iffy but some reports that make it seem that federer's prospects for playing the rest of the year are iffy based on his his knee injury simon graf who is a swiss journalist has speculated on twitter that he thinks roger will skip the u.s open and play laver cup instead and then try to gear up for australia now some you know a lot of other speculators are thinking well maybe he'll retire at labor cup and honestly we have no idea maybe some of roger's biggest stands understand him better but i have no idea what his plans are for retirement if he wants to go out in a big show or he just wants to sort of step back i don't know him but it's definitely something to you know keep on your radar over the next few months the labor cup account has welcomed with open arms that guy for a return trip to one of the scenes of his alleged crime. Uh, yeah, there. I'm glad that tennis Twitter is making noise about it because it's just in shockingly poor taste. We got a request from Michelle Jabour to talk about the clip that Mariah posted on her social media in honor of Whitney Houston's birthday, her what would have been her birthday this past week. And Mariah posted a clip of the two of them singing in the studio to When You Believe, which is their iconic duet that almost didn't happen because the music industry pit them against each other for so long. And every year now on Whitney's birthday, we get a little bit more from Mariah with respect to their friendship. And what's really great about it for me is that they were actually friends. Mm. You go back and you watch all these clips on social media, be it Whitney with Wendy Williams, Whitney's talking about, yeah, that's my lamb chop. She's my girl. (laughs) At every turn after that duet, they were giving nothing but love to each other. Yeah. Once they finally met, like, and came together, every time they were baited into saying something shady about the other, they refused. You also get the impression that they found each other hilarious. If you go back and watch (laughs) that hour-long appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show back in 1998... They're just sitting on that couch, kicking, have a great time. Mm-hmm. Whitney honestly seemed like a hilarious person. She was giving you like stud energy in that video. And she and Mariah just seemed to, I feel like it's hard to fake that kind of chemistry. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, Mariah was not a very good actress. <laughs> you know? <laughs> on that couch, Whitney's telling this story because Oprah asks her, how did this recording come to be? Were you in the studio on this side and Mariah was on the other side and then you took turns, da 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 And Whitney started off by saying, well, initially Mariah wasn't in there because she had a little bit of a vocal problem. Mm-hmm. And you could you could see Mariah is like, I know this heifer ain't talking about me having vocal problems. <laughs> that, that's, that's the reaction. But she lets her go, right? Because if it's one thing Mariah is, it's deferential to the greats who came before her mm-hmm. vocally, you know? She might not always be the nicest to the ones who came after. <laughs> she's, she's getting there. Especially to the ones who are given unwanted due with respect to their their voice or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. You know? 
I mean, Demi Lovato said that Mariah is a bully. Mm. Anyway, so Whitney tells this story about how, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, women, when they wake up in the morning, they they, they sound like a man. They're like a few octaves lower. And they were like, <laughs> Mariah's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. And then Whitney's like, you know, another thing that, that affects that is, you know, the monthly. <laughs> <laughs> and when she said that, Mariah just started cackling because the implication wasn't that that was part of what Mariah was going through then, right? Right. And Mariah's response as somebody who is an expert on her body language was like, Whitney's here talking some bullshit and I can't <laughs> even, I can't even deal with this right now, but she's living for it because it's so funny. Mm-hmm. It was probably honestly an inside joke between the two of them that they were not going to let us in. Yeah. On. A quick note on our olympic tennis dislike which we let y'all in on last episode we got quite a few responses about that listen if you enjoy it enjoy it we're not trying to tell you not to enjoy it at all that doesn't mean that you can like it it's just like a personal preference on our end Mm -hmm. we are now gearing up for the u.s open again that has its certain requirements from us these big these big events take a lot of time and preparation out of us Mm -hmm. and so we just don't have the bandwidth on top of everything else that we talked about with olympic tennis to make space for that yeah yeah a follow-up on the olympics we did a little bit of a track segment on the last episode elaine thompson hero doubled up again at the olympics after she won that 100 meter race i said to you like this is over i said to you in order for shelly to be the undisputed goat she needed to win that final. Mm-hmm. And the way Elaine won that 100-meter final, I said to you, she's going ro- to win that 200 going away. And it's exactly what happened. <laughs> she did. It wasn't close. Gabby Thomas may have been the favorite going into these Olympics. She got the bronze. and She really wasn't the favorite, though. She had a hot race at the Olympic She had the trials. fastest time, right, in the 200? Second fastest time ever. Mm. She won the Olympic trials, but the... the the times from that event were exceedingly quick. That could have been track-related, could have been condition-related. She hasn't won big titles mm-hmm. like that. Right, you right. Know, so. And, you know, credit to her because as an American, we are conditioned to be like gold or nothing. She was so happy about her bronze. That was really endearing to me that she was just like very gracious to the two women who ran faster than her, she was so happy to be there. Mm-hmm. And Christine Mboma is going to be a big problem. Yes. Uh, you know, she won silver in the 200 meters. As a teenager. incredibly fast time. Yeah. When she came back to clip Shelly out of a medal. <sighs> I know. But the Jamaican women broke their curse in the 4x100 relay, winning gold. They hadn't won Olympic gold in the 4x1 since 2004. They've had a lot of mishaps, misfortune in that event historically. The very first one I watched, the 1992 4x1 final, Juliet Cuthbert, who had just won double silver in the 100 and 200, was running a blistering leg and then pulled a hamstring right before she was to hand off the baton. And that was the end of their... Merlene didn't get her gold medal. And they've had a lot of like world-beating teams that mm-hmm. should have won the relay. And if one more team comes up banned for doping, the Jamaican men might win a medal in the relay too. <laughs> well, 
that would be one of the most undeserving medals in yes. history because that was a greatest fail of all time. Mm. Baton change from first to second, like it was, well, like it was wild. Not worse than the U.S. team failing to qualify for the final. That's those are your country people mm. that you're. Mm. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna add to it. Carl Lewis beat on them enough. Mm. On that note, thank you for listening. We uh, will be back soon. The U.S. Open will be starting soon. You'll be getting three or four episodes in that that two weeks. <laughs> yeah, uh, normally around this time we would be in Cincinnati. Obviously, we won't be this year, but uh, have fun. And if you are there, enjoy that woman's draw because upon quick perusal, it is... I mean, people say this all the time, like, oh my god, it's popcorn, it's straight fire, it's this, that... It's literally jaw drop after jaw drop. There's nowhere to hide in that draw. You have the Olympic final rematch in the first round (laughs) with Bencic and Vondrosova. And then you also have potentially Coco Gauff and Naomi Osaka in the second round. It's it's madness. So thank you for listening. Uh, I'm James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan at Tennis underscore John. If you enjoy the show, please hit us up with a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes. <laughs> you can <laughs> listen, find what we have this one star review on from the UK that every time I look to see if we've gotten any more reviews, it's the one that's right on the top. So a special request: if it's, you are in the UK, no, it's it's motivating. No, 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 is what it is. No, it disgusts me. <laughs> if you are in the UK and you like the show and want to give us a review to help cleanse this palette please do so hmm. you can find us on spotify overcast apple uh thebodyserve.podbean.com thanks to folks who bought merch we're seeing a lot of you on site now at tennis tournaments that is super exciting yeah we've got uh an official model who's working pro bono in cincinnati let us know if you spot him <laughs> <laughs> till next time thank you very much <laughs>